Harvard Divinity School. Black Religion and Critical Theory Colloquium, Panel 1, October 5th, 2023. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this event that we've all been looking forward to, uh, the Black Religion and Critical Theory Colloquium. My name is David Holland. I'm the interim dean this semester at the Harvard Divinity School, and it's my pleasure and honor to extend to our faculty, our students, our friends, uh, our graduates, a very warm welcome to today's colloquium. This has been uh, a wonderful event to watch come into formation and to see the lineup for today take shape um, in both panels, the series of scholars that promise to enrich and challenge and elevate us as teachers, as scholars, and as community members. So thank you in advance to those who will be participating. My primary job today is to thank my colleague, Ahmad Green-Hayes, who has really been the driving force behind this uh, and who has poured both his uh, intellectual uh, acumen and uh, his uh, organizational energy uh, into making this happen. So could we please give uh, Professor Green-Hayes a hand <laughs> And with that, I'll hand the lectern to him. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Dean Holland. Those introductory remarks. Good morning, everyone. It's very lovely to see all of your faces in the room. Um, as the Dean said, I am Ahmad Green-Hayes, Assistant Professor of African-American Religious Studies here at Harvard Divinity School. And I'm excited to welcome you to the Black Religion and Critical Theory Colloquium um, before I say a few brief words about this gathering, I wanted to begin with a word of thanks. Again, thank you to Dean Holland for the remarks, and thanks, of course, to our outgoing uh, Dean David Hempton in his absence, who believed in the vision for this event and supported its execution from the start. I'd also like to thank Marlon Cummings, uh, Madeline Scott, and my current faculty coordinator, Sue Min Kim, along with the entire staff of the Office of Academic Affairs and IT for all of their assistance with making today possible. Gratitude as well to graduate assistants, Stephen Harris and Ramin Javadian for their logistical so support and to my colleagues in the area of black religion, professors Tracy Hawks, Terrence Johnson, and Jacob Alupana for their continued support. The Black Religion and Critical Theory Colloquium is a new endeavor here at Harvard Divinity School that seeks to bridge connections between the critical study of black religion and studies of race, gender, and sexuality in critical theory and philosophy, among many other fields. The aim of this gathering is to support research and sustain dialogue about the ways in which religion and race are co-constitutive and function as governing categories of analysis at the helm of both religious studies and black studies, respectively. This colloquium is designed to incite intellectual exchange among leading and emerging scholars and to suggest new directions for future research and teaching. Those invited have been encouraged to consider the following queries. What insights does religious studies offer black studies? And what insights does black studies offer religious studies? 
What is the relationship between non-being and religion and theology? How does critical theory inform or complicate the study of black religion and vice versa? These queries emerge in part from a number of pressing debates in the fields of black studies, religious studies, and critical theory, specifically around the interrelation between the ontological and the theological, the making of man or the human as a product of modernity and of the new world regime, the multiple competing and interlocking forms of relation produced by the plantation and the transatlantic slave trade, the problems of the archive as both a site of terror and possibility in the afterlives of slavery, colonialism, and dispossession, the relation among man, animal, and planet, concerns which continue to animate debates around the Anthropocene, climate, the state of the world as we know it, and other pressing concerns about research and scholarship that might work in the service of the slave and her descendants. These are rich theoretical debates that span several fields and invite us to contend with the limits of disciplinary bounds and to break new ground by engaging across methodological orientations, specifically as it relates to the philosophy of religion, theology and ethics, history, ethnography, political theory, queer and trans studies, and other methods which our respective speakers interrogate in their own work. It is my hope that this will be the first of many gatherings here at Harvard Divinity School under the banner of black religion and critical theory. And we are very pleased that these illustrious scholars and thinkers have agreed to grace our campus for the inaugural iteration of this necessary and timely event. Thank you all for being here. I won't uh, belabor the moment. I will only begin by, we'll have two panels. Let me pause. We'll have two panels today. The first will include Cecilia Cooper and Joseph Winters. Our third speaker, unfortunately, Professor J. Cameron Carter cannot physically be with us due to a flooding issue at his home. Um, and so he sends his regrets. We've been trying all morning to try to get him here virtually. But unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case. But we are working to reschedule to have him here at Harvard Divinity School. Our second panel this afternoon will feature Dr. Carrie Day, Dr. Joy James, and Paul Anthony Daniels. So we'll begin with the first panel. Um, I will read the bios of our two panelists here first. We'll also have a break in between the, the two sessions, and then we'll have an afternoon a second panel and an end for the day with closing community conversation. Cecilia M. Cooper is a 2023 to 24 Folger Institute long-term research fellow. They've previously held postdoctoral fellowships at NYU as well as the University of Michigan. Via Black Critical Thought, they broadly address debates around gender, political theology, cartography, iconography, and science studies. Their first book manuscript examines the occulted role blackness and darkness play in cosmological constitutions of sub subsurface space by engaging the visual cultures of alchemy and demonology. Cooper's research has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Antiquarian Society, John Carter Brown Library, Yale Center for British Art, and Folger Shakespeare Library, among others. They completed the PhD with distinction in African-American studies and a graduate certificate in critical theory from Northwestern University. Their talk today is entitled Epicenity and Infernal Iconography. 
Our second speaker is Dr. Joseph Winters, who is, who is an associate professor in religious studies and African and African-American studies at Duke University. He holds secondary appointments in English and gender and sexuality and feminist studies. Winters' interests lie at the intersection of black religious thought, black studies, and critical theory. His research examines the ways black literature and aesthetics develop alternative configurations of the sacred, piety, black spirit, and secularity in response to the religious underpinnings of anti-black violence and coloniality. His first book, Hope Draped in Black, Race, Melancholy, and the Agony of Progress, was published by Duke University Press in 2016. Winters is currently finishing a second manuscript titled Disturbing Profanity, Hip Hop, Black Aesthetics, and the Volatile Sacred. His talk today is entitled Profane Ruptures, Blackness, Religion, and World Deformation. If we could begin by giving these two scholars a round of applause. And before I take my seat, I do want to call your attention to the program. At the bottom of the first page, there is a QR code where you can scan from your phone and your questions will be curated by our graduate assistants. So at the conclusion of the presentations, we'll have a Q&A and open conversation. Thank you. Dr. Cooper. Hello, everyone. It's lovely to see you. I am so appreciative um, that I've been given the opportunity to share my um, unusual research um, with this um, specially curated audience. Um, it's a treat to be able to um, think um, deeply about questions of religion as well as black critical thought among people who are um, invested in being rigorous and generous. And I'm so appreciative of the organizers um, in front of and behind the scenes for um, affording this opportunity um, for us to gather and um, use our imaginations. And with that, I'll begin. Fantastical depictions of subsurface space constitute arresting scenes of late medieval and early modern cosmography. The idea of an umbrous subterranean domain for the deceased isn't exclusive to monotheistic scripture. Hades, for example, doubles as the name for another well-known afterlife terminus rooted in polytheistic Greco-Roman traditions, as well as its ruler. The German Tannhauser legend chronicles a knight's renegade voyage to Venusburg, which is where he rendezvoused with the love goddess Venus deep within her mountain home. Arguably, none of the varied interpretations that exist of underworlds in Western thought have become more recognizable than those of Christian hell. Its infamy as the cardinal carceral space for the damned inspired artists to create canonical and terrifying spectacles. In the wake of Dante's indelible influence, visual portrayals of hell took on a distinctly cartographic and morphological tenor. This included vivid attempts to systematically map hell as a layered expanse occupied by taxonomically distinguishable elements. Now, alongside these attempts at taming diabolical disarray through vertically oriented lines of order, another set of complementary set of hellscapes accentuated globular properties and theriomorphic physiognomies. So in this painting detail on the right, the devil writhes in anguish after being overtaken by the pale archangel, St. Michael. 
The rows of spiked white teeth on the humanesque bat hybrid's head are salaciously echoed on both its groin and the phallic snake slithering from the same opening. The suspenseful episode from the Book of Revelations is a highly aestheticized announcement of castration anxiety that was provoked by a melanated anti-hero. The glowing red spheres of its pupiled eyes similarly repeat as a pair of protruding nipple dormants on an armored breastplate. In keeping with racially coded spatial and chromatic symbolism, the black creature is relegated to the bottom right corner of the composition. White trumps black and sacred vanquishes profane, an all too familiar refrain. The conflation of consumptive orifices, sex gender indeterminacy, and dark monstrosity shown here are recurring themes throughout Hellmouth imagery. Mouths are charged sites of logocentric emittance and eroticized thoroughfares for supernatural power. They are penetrable vehicles for prayer and Eucharistic intimacy, while also inviting abyssal descent, damnation, and demonic possession. Medievalist scholar Nancy Cacciola notes that, quote, medieval artistic portrayals of death present striking parallels with portrayals of exorcism. In both cases, the spirit is shown exiting through the mouth, end quote. A quest for symmetry between the macrocosm and microcosm structures the scalar dimensions of demonic possession. Malevolent spirits threaten corporeal integrity by wantonly invading individuated body territory so that these atomized conquests correlate to the broad scale triumph over the entire subterranean domain of hell. J. Lauren Matori incisively states that, quote, Afro-Atlantic sacred ontologies both belie the isomorphism of the body with the person and concomitantly the isomorphism of territory with community, end quote. Body schemas are territorial configurations that doubly index sizable geographic territories and smaller ones within immediate reach of a single sinful host's skeleton. Individuated cases of possession resemble wars of position, a la Antonio Gramsci, meant to hasten protracted wars of maneuver over global dominance. Occult iconography in concert with texts corporealize infernal territorialization in disconcerting ways. Disembodied hell mouths and bipedal archdemons conjure up carnality as a conduit for collegianous perdition. European portrayals of these figures have often been perceived in attendant scholarship as anthropomorphically female and so corroborating beliefs that women were especially susceptible to demonic possession. Alongside images of long-haired serpents, Cacciola's related analysis of another type of gestating, di digesting Satan imagery circulated in 14th to 15th century frescoes in ways that are indicative of this tendency. Rather than a clear-cut gender normative visage, these squatting hirsute figures seem to take a more conspicuously aberrant compound male-female form. In both Giotto's fresco at Scrovegni Chapel in Padua and Buffalmanco's fresco at the Cemetery of Pisa, a horned creature seems to excrete or consume 
smaller pale bodies from an orifice below its belly. From murals to illuminated manuscripts, intentional ambiguity around this being an alimentary, reproductive, and or scatological act is a hallmark of these colorful hailscapes. Moreover, the boundaries limiting interiority from exteriority are troubled by the infernally, quote, porous body that interpenetrates its environment, absorbing and expelling elements of its surroundings, end quote. There are no visible phallic or mammary features on the archdemon to shore up speculations as to exactly what anatomical labels should appropriately be used to describe its growing opening. The indeterminate sex gender characteristics of the gestating slash digesting Satan were intrinsic to the visual grammar used to convey that evil is most rawly expressed as disorder. Cacciola eschews any mention of the gestating digesting Satan as possibly serving as a hermaphroditic figure in order to advance her claims about white cisgender women suffering as the quintessence of the feminized demonic. However, I interpret these diabolical figures not only as emblematizing demonic cis-femininity, but perhaps more accurately signifying a distinctly dark demonic epicenity. In linguistics, the term epicene describes nouns that fall below the threshold of sex differentiability. For example, the singular pronoun they is considered gender neutral because it is used with morphological consistency for reference of any gender. Because of its applicability as a plural noun, they also has political purchase for trans, intersex, genderqueer, bigender, non-binary persons because it can also signal the plurality of fluctuating gender expressions possibly coexisting within a single individual. Epicenity then reminds us that gender is legion, that multitudes can reside in one. The gender mix representations of the gestating, digesting Satans resonated with submerged perceptions of the fallen angel as an intersex or even polysex Satan rather than exclusively male entity. Unequivocal distinctions parsing male from female as upheld by a dyadic Aristotelian schema are instead collapsed within its, within its beastly, beastly androgynous frame. Its hybrid form was more compatible with a Galenic model. According to Hill Malatino, quote, Intersex bodies were perceived as composed of both male and female elements, located between genders, as it were. The understanding of sex is what we could term bimodal rather than dimorphic, end quote. Still, what is clear is that this version of Satan cannot squarely be situated among the reference for man with a capital M, which is a cisgender masculine placeholder around which Judeo-Christian slash theological sovereignty orbits. I point to this diabolically epicene motif in early modern art because it is a noteworthy antecedent to Baphomet iconography, which has proliferated since the 19th century. Michael Knowles inflammatorily advocated for the eradication of transgenderism in public life entirely at the 2023 Conservative Political Action Conference held at the Gaylord National Harbor Resort and Convention Center in National Harbor, Maryland. He then took 
an even more apotropaic stance by explicitly framing the quote, transgender agenda as quote, really demonic stuff. And this all happened on his solo show that you can catch on YouTube. This incipient trans eradication campaign is part of an intensifying wave of organized aggression towards transgender people in the United States and Britain. The Daily Wire commentator went on to invoke Alifa Slebi's rendering of Baphomet as a quote, trans depiction that portrays a quote, man and a woman kind of blended together in a really grotesque way, end quote. So from this right-wing pundit's perspective, the mounting appeals for the civic recognition of transgender persons amounts to spiritual attacks on man's sexual nature and sexual difference and complementarity. Despite his distinctly anti-feminist invectives, the practicing Roman Catholic Knowles makes strange annihilationist bedfellows with feminists, from Zionist lesbian separatists to gender-critical evangelicals on the issue of transness. Predation turfism denounces transfeminine people, according to Heike Schoten, as imposters hellbent on sexually assaulting and replacing authentic cis women. Transmasculine people, by this thinking, are likewise charged with apostatically defecting from and destabilizing sapphic sisterhood. These religiously inflected trans antagonistic dispositions are animated by a quote, extinction phobia which is a terrified anxiety about the ability of the demonized other to eradicate oneself and one's people. Citing ancient precedent, Knowles further deploys diabolizing rhetoric by suggesting that the dysmorphic discord between body and interiority, thought intrinsic to trans self-actualization, might actually be caused by diabolical entities. Demonic possession described these cases and when malevolent spirits threaten corporeal integrity by wantonly invading personal body territory. So due to their unruly nature, Knowles thinks these supernatural miscreants comprise a compelling facet of gender-based spiritual warfare, as well as rhetoric. Art, literature, and media, trafficking in satanic feminist traditions audaciously, audaciously reclaim the insurgent energy inhabiting demonic figures like Baphomet from the religious rites quest for exorcism. As an individuated occult figure, Baphomet functions as an infernal androgynous foil to the archetypal cisgender heterosexual dyad Adam and Eve from Judeo-Christian exegesis. Trans and non-binary pagans of many stripes embrace Baphomet as a gender non-conforming emblem of their disidentification for Abrahamic faiths and compulsory cisgenderism. Described as the fallen deity that the Knights of Templar were accused of apostatically venerating, Baphomet is a bearded, clovenhood idol with wings. Baphomet operates as a demonic progenitor of evil in the sublunar world while simultaneously embodying within a single form how human, non-human animal offspring might appear as a result of witches of any gender copulating with demons. Baphomet is imbued with the epicene darkness in ways that have been most readily recognized as having chromatic or esoteric significance.
In early 2000, 2018, conservative British pundits lambasted black transgender model and activist Monroe Bergdorf for her issuing anti-racist critiques and publicly displaying her witchcraft practices on social media. She was consequently asked to resign from the Labor Party's LGBT plus advisory board. What was her crime? A statue of Baphomet sat as the idolatrous centerpiece of her pagan altar. Baphomet appeared again that year across the pond as the star of a US-based conflict this time. The Satanic Temple sued Netflix series Chilling Adventures of Sabrina for copyright infringement for its goat-headed statue of Baphomet with children. Baphomet, also known as the Sabbatic Goat, Goat of Vendes, or the Scapegoat, is a supernatural figure sporting similarly incredulous attributes like the first demon um, on the first slide, crushed by St. Michael. It's got wings, a breastplate, so forth. The symmetrical cross-legged pose with right arm raised upward and left hand pointing downward is mimicked on the devil, justice, and magician tarot cards in the Rider Waite deck. Ishmael Reed describes Baphomet as the black god the Knights of Templar were accused of worshiping. The Church of Satan's establisher, Anton Zander LeVay, declared that Baphomet, quote, represents the power of darkness combined with the generative fertility of a goat. So despite being regularly portrayed chromatically as black or very dark, Baphomet has not been discussed as a racialized figure in attendant scholarship. Levy's rendition of Baphomet supported ongoing efforts to recuperate the devil from being a maligned emissary for evil. Accentuating the figure's identification with Lucifer as the light bringer could overshadow its more nefarious common sense associations with Satan as the prince of darkness. Central to the esoteric dogma of magic is the concept of astral light, which was an essentially agnostic implement for transformation. It was an invisible and malleable vehicle for communicating intentions when its complementary feminine and masculine currents were properly manipulated. While a vibrant force subject to use for maleficent ends, Levy found that alchemists and socialist revolutionaries alike demonstrated how astral light could also be wielded for the greater good. Baphomet presides then over worldly and otherworldly affairs as astral light incarnated, as opposed to an evil emissary. Infernal epicenity was one means through which Levy um, and his supporters conveyed the equilibrium opposites as a tenet central to magical doctrine. Alexandra James, front woman for the band Twin Temple, compellingly, compellingly remarks that Baphomet is technically a goddess, but also a god, an intersex deity who represents the transcendence of binary forms, dissolving and the coming together of self. According to Parafax Nailed, a religious historian, satanic feminism champions Lucifer as a liberator of women rather than a duplicitous agent of Eve's downfall. The feminist impact of this vein of occult icons endures centuries later as epicene demons still signify the harmonious collapse and integration of sex-gender duality, as well as other dichotomies of social, political, religious, and philosophical import. And towards a conclusion, we presently sit at a juncture when camouflage retrenchments endorsing the singularity of antipodal 
black femininity, and femaleness have become irrevocably implicated in cis-aspirant trans antagonisms. My use of cis-aspirant means to acknowledge both the impact of anti-black ungendering processes and the unmet black desire for cisgender capacities. This paper instead foregrounds epicenity as an under-theorized mode through which blackness is incessantly demonized. I not only appreciate how the libidinally charged dynamics around depth, dimension, descent, and dominion percolate key subsets of occult iconography, critically attending to overlapping genres of religious imagery, further reveals how the inscrutably polymorphic figures they contain flagrantly emblematize demonological volumetrics while perverting potentials often regarded as exclusively grounding cis heteronormative eroticism as well as dimorphic reproduction. Moreover, in plotting late medieval and early modern scenes of diabolical darkness within the durational scope of black visual culture, troubles to me contemporary attempts at disavowing how they indispensably fuel racialized anti-trans mobilizations. The idea persists that the vilification of fluctuating sex gender excess is a phenomenal tendency that exclusively indexes a monstrous cis femininity and nothing else. The maligning of epicenity, despite its clear extra-dimorphic and quadquaversal manifestations, is misrecognized as a low-level auxiliary feature of cis women's oppression. However, I aim to counter these tendencies by foregrounding epicenity as a racialized mode of sexuated debasement meriting study in its own right. Suggesting that cis femaleness, including black cis femaleness or cis female aspiration, is so capacious that it can absorb any and all facets of gender objection is not motivated by an innocent desire for accuracy. This critical stance is also an unfortunate outlet for cis-centric trans antagonisms articulated in a distinctly black tone. It works to subdue, silence, and sideline any black analyses of gender that would destabilize the transphobic gatekeeping upholding cis over trans which undergirds the paradigmatic scaffolding of white over black. Insisting that the exhaustive pliability of black cisgender positionalities be singly funneled through cis-aspirant appeals is to put it plainly transphobic. Its enthusiastic embrace of a two-sex model puts black studies in closer alignment with supposed competing schools of thought that some of us would like to readily admit. I began with religious depictions of inscrutably sex infernal figures and early modern art as an effort to contextualize how demonization of epicenity shapes pejorative regard for transgender people today. Critically examining, invigorating, and even embracing adversarial positions is one familiar way that oppressed constituencies navigate lethal structures without necessarily conceding wholesale to the temptations of respectability, recognition, and or incorporation. My very sincere wish is that whatever cross-fertilizations that might newly emerge between black studies and religious studies, that they lean toward black trans people's well-being rather than our continued erasure and demise. Thank you.
Good afternoon. Again, I want to thank uh, Ahmad, um, thank all of you, Harvard Divinity School, and all the other panelists whose work I've learned much from. So I just want to talk a little bit about how I'm thinking about this intersection of um, black studies and black religion, right, and, and just kind of maybe give a slice of my, my research and then how I, I think it connects with some of the other panelists, right. So my project is motivated by two underexamined tendencies within academic discourses. One involves drawing a stable contrast between the religious and the secular, a division that is operative in genealogies of coloniality and anti-black racism that ignore or diminish the religious logics and grammars that underpin these arrangements. Following the research of authors like Saba Mahmoud, Talal Assad, and Gil Anajar, I, I, I take it that secular, secularism is not the opposite of, relig of the religious, but a mechanism by which Western liberal regimes have regulated the practice of religion and manage populations through normalized conceptions of the religious, proper Christianity, and so forth. The second related tendency separates, often separates the field of black studies from uh, black religious thought. This split creates a predicament where the religious and black studies is either marginal, under-theorized, or reducible to the black church, or Afro-Protestantism, as some might say. Similar to the recent work of scholars like J. Cameron Carter and Cecilia Cooper, I hope to bring greater attention to the ways that black studies provides a criticism of religious grammars that have shaped and sanctioned imperialism, coloniality, and anti-blackness. I also pursue how authors and, and, and artists within black intellectual and aesthetic traditions provide alternative conceptions of the sacred spirit and secularity in ways that hopefully are more open to the opaque, the unruly, and the errant. So one author who I've been thinking about uh, for a couple of years, I did not know how I was gonna, I would be thinking this much about this author, is Marcia Eliada, right? I, I, was, I was constantly teaching these theorizing religion courses, right? And I was like thinking about Eliada and I kept coming across these passages where the sacred is being defined over and against certain kinds of qualities. And I'm reading it alongside like Sadia Hartman, um, Hortense Spillers, Fred Moten, Frank Wilderson and others, right, Cooper's Cooper's, right, and so I'm like, there's something here. So I wanna suggest that reading Eliada, right, even though he's been dismissed or criticized for being ahistorical, right, uh, times for being uh, apologists for like Christian theology, that there are unintended insights, right, that there are unintended insights in, in his work that I think are really important for black studies, right? To begin to understand this 20th century uh, Romanian philosopher of religion, um, in his formulation of religious experience, it is helpful to consider his tribute or shout out to Rudolf Otto's work, particularly the latter's description of the holy as the mysterium tremendum, or this terrifying and awe-inspiring, um, terrifying and awe-inspiring power. Even though Eliada claims to have different aims than Otto's inquiry into the irrational and non-conceptual aspects of the sacred, he accepts the Otto-inspired claim that, quote, the sacred always manifests itself as a reality of a wholly different order from natural realities, end quote. Consequently, quote, man becomes aware of the sacred because it manifests itself, shows itself as something wholly different from the profane, end quote. The language of the holy other, of absolute alterity, underscores the vertical and qualitative difference between the sacred and the profane, a quasi-ontological difference that is manifested through various hierophanies. The appearance of the divine exhibits to human subjects a profound power that also reveals the insignificance of the human and the natural world apart from the powers that created that world. And yet, Eliada insists that in order for a hierophany to show itself and to be experienced by a human, this appearance must occur through the ordinary world, through trees, symbols, rituals, myths, animals, heroic figures, and so forth. As Eliada puts it, we are confronted by a mysterious act, the manifestation of something of a wholly different order, a reality that does not belong to our world, in objects that are integral part of our natural and profane world, end quote. Therefore, when Eliada speaks of the division of the sacred and profane as an abyss, 
We should be reminded that religious experience constitutes a kind of bridge over and within that abyss. In other words, his tendency to, to describe these two modalities of experience as completely different is in tension with an assumption of an a priori communicability between these two experiences or planes of the sacred and profane. Thus, Eliade can sum up toward the end of the book, whatever the historical context in which it is placed, homo religious always believes there is an absolute reality, the sacred, which transcends this world but manifests itself in this world, thereby sanctifying it and making it real. While the transcending can only be actualized to the imminent, Eliade maintains that without the appearance of the other, big O, humans would not even be able to distinguish between the religious and non-religious. To put it differently, the eruption of the hierophany makes the sacred profane demarcation possible in the first place. It enables humans to set apart certain spaces or objects as more significant than others. Consequently, for the religious person in touch with the sacred, space is not homogeneous. He experiences interruptions, breaks in it. Some parts of space are qualitatively different from others. So it's almost like he's saying, without those hierophanies, one wouldn't even be able to make those kinds of distinctions between the sacred and profane. According to Eliada, religious people affirm a fundamental non-homogeneity regarding space being an experience. They live according to a constitutive opposition between space that is meaningful and coherent and parts of the world that are amorphous and without form. The preservation of space that is meaningful and that participates in the really real wards off the chaos associated with homogeneous space, with profane existence, or with life that does not involve stabilizing interruptions and separations. This is because religious demarcations between the structured and the chaotic repeat and participate in the original acts of creation in the inst uh, that instituted the world. For Eliada, a world is made possible by establishing limits, fixed points, and central axes within and against a formless expanse. A world is what is carved out from an undifferentiated region, enabling religious people to mark and identify the separation between two disparate kinds of spaces and modes of being. Consequently, to build a, 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 to build a home, to construct a city, or settle a territory is analogous to founding a world as those endeavors establish a paradigm for orientation. These activities enable humans to communicate with the gods and imitate the work of divine creation. Here we should pause and think through the recurring frictions and ambiguities in Eliade's right, formulation of the sacred. On the one hand, Eliade continues to make strong contrast when juxtaposing sacred and profane existence, particularly regarding the kinds of qualities, dispositions, and capacities that each modality affords. For religious persons, the sacred provides access to the real, at once power, efficacy, the source of life, and fecundity, whereas profane life is a kind of stuck-in illusion and threatened by irrelevance. Reenacting the work of the gods enables humans to dwell in the world as a home, as a stable abode. To the contrary, for the irreligious person, there's no longer any world. There are only fragments right, of a shattered universe. Without perpetual contact with divine creation or the powers of world production, one barely lives and cannot quench what he calls the ontological thirst or fully participate in being. I mean, for Eliade, to some extent, religion signifies man's quest for being, right? Which should, we should think about that, right? And what the condition of possibility is that. He reminds the reader that profane existence is never found in its pure state. I'm sorry, let me see. And yet this complete separation between sacred and profane existence never really holds for Eliade. Right? He reminds the reader that, quote, profane existence is never found in its pure state. Therefore, even the most desacralized existence still preserves traces of religious valorization of the world. For instance, he says, right, non-religious people might, might treat certain places like a birthplace as unique and exceptional. They may distinguish certain experiences as being different in kind um, than uh, the typical interactions that comprise ordinary life. Citizen subjects within a particular nation state are often educated to think of certain places, events, legal documents, and foundational figures as if they are sacred, as if they re almost re represent quasi-transcendent phenomena around which social life is organized and solidified. 
right? Eliade is invested in delineating what he calls crypto-religious examples to show that even in a disenchanted world, vestiges of religious man will always remain. In the same way that Eliade refuses the possibility of purely profane space, and by implication a purely sacred space, he broaches the language of the threshold to describe the passage from one realm to another. Using the example of a door located between the street and the inside of a church or a temple, Eliade writes, the threshold that separates the two spaces also indicates the distance between two modes of being, the profane and the religious. The threshold is the limit, the boundary, the frontier that distinguishes and opposes two worlds. At the same time, the paradoxical space where the worlds communicate <clears throat> where passage from one, uh, from the sacred to the, I'm sorry, from the profane to the sacred world becomes possible. The threshold, which is an object of great importance, is, is simultaneously the interval at which differences between two things are most amplified and when a kind of crossing and boundary blurring occurs. Right? To put it differently, the threshold is a limit that brings into focus both contrast and intimacy. It acts as a border that separates entirely different spaces while allowing for movement and transition between these two spaces. Without the threshold, this border and open and communication between the gods and humans would, would be impossible, even though Eliade prioritizes the appearance of the divine as the foundation for religiosity and world making. One could say that the threshold is the condition of possibility for religious experience. It enables the eruption of the sacred to be manifested, actualized, and experienced within the profane world. It is the occasion for contact, touch, relation, interaction, and passage. And while the threshold often retains its function as a border, between the two realms, we should keep in mind the paradoxical nature of this in-between position. One way to flesh out the implications of the threshold and concomitant concepts, separation and contact, is to think through Eliade's brief allusion to the religious underpinnings of colonial encounters, or his description of the world instituting or world establishing sacred um, as being implicated in settler colonial projects. Recall that for Eliade, a world is defined against a formless, a formless space, or space that is undifferentiated and without stable borders and limits. The religious person inhabits a well-defined world, according to Eliade, that is part of a broader cosmos. Anything that is on the other side of that established world is indeterminate, unknown, foreign, and so forth. And yet a kind of transformation can happen for Eliade when inhabitants of an ordered world cross over and consecrate the, quote, unknown space that extends beyond its frontiers, end quote. Possession of land accompanied by ritual and building altars is equivalent to converting chaos into form and extending the order instituting work of divine creation. As Eliade puts it, quote, an unknown foreign and unoccupied territory, which often means unoccupied by our people, still shares in the fluid and larval modality of chaos. By occupying it, and above all, by settling in it, man symbolically transforms it into a cosmos through a ritual repetition of divine creation. Settling unknown territory entails a certain imagination of that territory as devoid of form, life, stability, and a need of some kind of external imposition of structure and organization. The pursuit of settlement also assumes that the threshold between our world and their world is fluid and permeable, even as that flu fluidity can become the occasion for dispossession in the name of a rigid contrast between the world and wilderness or sacred and profane. Exemplified for Eliada by the Spanish and Portuguese conquest of the Americas, taking possession of foreign territory for the colonizer is a form of renewal and giving new life to regions and peoples considered not quite alive. One might consider this, uh, this connection between the consecration of space and the colonial occupation of land as a, as a dynamic that is no longer prevalent in a modern secularized, secularized world. In a world organized by nation-state sovereignty, militarism, and the operations of capital, it might seem that Eliade's religious lexicon is outdated. This suspicion is compounded when Eliade makes distinctions between traditional and modern societies, designating to the former myths that involve gods slaying monsters and dragons of the underworld prior to creation. Right? The renewal of the world for, for traditional religious societies, he tells us, required the repetition of the victory of the gods over the forces of darkness, death, and chaos. 
Right. Yet Eliade reminds the reader that modern, day, modern subjects are very much committed to constructing <laughs> boundaries to hold at bay beings, populations, dangers, and desires that threaten to, quote, bring about ruin, disintegration, and death. He contends that a religious conception of the world remains in collective anxieties about the, the quote unquote civilized world, being inundated with those chaotic forces from within and elsewhere. Here we might think of the kinds of discourses that mark uh, migrants from Haiti, Central America as a peril to US safety and border maintenance. For Eliade, the enduring opposition between a coherent world and disorder indicates trepidation at the prospect of, quote, the abolition of an order, a cosmos and organic structure, an immersion in the uh, state of fluidity, of formlessness, in short, of chaos. For Eliade, religiosity persists in humanity's need for order, the desire to inhabit a world that provides structure and orientation, and a certain kind of thirst and quest for being. Those qualities that might violate or profane this attachment to order, darkness, formlessness, must be contained, eliminated, or incorporated into a well-ordered cosmos. Okay, you probably wonder, why all this Eliade? So let me try to just go, let me discover this, let me break it down for what, right? So I think for, for me, there's at least four or five things that I'm really interested in, right? Eliade has this moment where he says, right, something like, settling, ter right, settling territory, right? right? Settling territory, he's thinking again about Spanish and, uh, Spanish and Portuguese conquistadors. And it's not always clear that he's, I mean, he's giving descriptions, right? A phenomenolo phenomenological descriptions. It's not always clear if he's endorsing or not, right? But settling territory is like founding a world, he says, right? And that founding of a world is almost like particip participating in the work of the gods, right? Participating in, right, cosmogony, participating in the creation of the world, right? So world making, right, is what for Eliade connects humans to the gods, right? It is a kind of sacred practice of becoming divine. World built, and that's one, two, world building, right? Right, the what you could think about in terms of cosmos, order, organic structure, is opposed to the virtual, the fluid, blackness, the aquatic, the, the monstrous, or what he says, that which is yet to acquire a form. Right? So we can think here, if I think here was, right, Celia Cooper's work, it would be that, right, the sacred in some way, right, not only defined against darkness, but also the underworld, right? The chthonic, right? The threshold, right, is a space where contrasts break down, right, where there's this moment, right, a moment where something breaks down, right, where the contrast between sacred and profane or between order and chaos, right, actually, right, um, you know, has to kind of undergo a certain kind of fluidity, right, and yet that also becomes the occasion to reintroduce and reestablish certain kinds of binaries and demarcations, right. If, if, Eliade, if Eliade's description is right, then we might see coloniality, right, settler colonial regimes, right, as religious ceremonies, right, as sacred economies. So two, two authors that I, I try to think in conversation with Eliade, right, are um, uh, W.B. Du Bois and Sylvia Winter. I won't go too much, I want to have time for um, conversation, but right, consider Du Bois' 1920 essay, The Souls of White Folk, right, in which the philosopher, sociologist, and activist refers to whiteness as a religion, right, uh, rejecting the notion that whiteness is reducible to pigmentation. Du Bois describes, a belief, uh, describes it as a belief system, right? one that includes the presumed superiority of white peoples over non-white peoples, and a devotion to, quote, ownership of the earth forever and ever, amen, end, end quote. Right? In this essay, he, he talks about right, whiteness as belief, uh, fantasy, desire, right? but also right, as a religion. Here, Du Bois implicitly refuses any, stable, uh, any uh, durable distinction between belief and practice. In fact, belief in whiteness is directly connected to right, property, ownership, and the operations of right, ex uh, expansive capitalism. 
Whiteness is a belief system that propels and legitimates the conversion of opaque regions and populations into the property of European and American imperial endeavors. Within this religion of whiteness, the agents of European civilization can treat themselves as what he says, supermen and world-mastering demigods. Or in Eliade's language, they can imitate the gods by occupying, settling, and governing foreign territories, or territories rendered opaque, fluid, and so forth. Du Bois's interpretation of Western imperialism, religious, uh, religious terms, nullifies linear secular narratives that would describe modernity as a progressive, sh progressive shift away from the significance of religion. For Du Bois, the religion of whiteness is the nation's life. It holds and binds, right, you can think of here the, the term religare meaning to bind and to tie. It holds and binds the nation together, together even as this life is predicated on death-producing rituals. Jamaican philosopher and critic um, Sylvia Winter continues these lines of thought in her description of Western man. Uh, or the dominant representation of humanity, unduly defined by whiteness, masculinity, uh, heteronormativity, and property ownership. According to Winter, Western man has been constructed over and against non-Europeans, Native Americans, right, and black people. What is crucial for her is this bifurcation between Western man and its racial others, being an extension and re-expression of previous theological demarcations. Racial and colonial hierarchies are updated versions of the kinds of invidious distinctions made between the redeemed, the unredeemed, the Christian, and the infidel. Um, uninhabitable and inhabitable land and spirit and flesh. In each of these binaries are ways of carving up the earth and the planet. The first term in the binary represents symbolic life, while the opposing term signifies death. These divisions are rearticulated, for instance, in Darwin's notion of natural selection, according to Winter, where some species and groups are fit for preserving life, while others are selected for erasure. Although Winter tends to accept a rather conventional, at times, understanding of secularization, she uses language like degotting and so forth, right? where modern scientific frameworks replace theocentric paradigms, she contends that what remains across this transition is a sense of planetary non-homogeneity. Right? I think this is interesting, the sense of right, carving up the world in terms of symbolic life and death. This is precisely how Eliade talks about right, the sacred and the religious right, in terms of non-homogeneity. Right? There's certain kinds of spaces that have to be set apart as more coherent, more life-giving than others. Right? So I'm not saying that they're talking to each other, but for me, they're talking to each other. right? So, right? <clears throat> Right, so, right, you know. Um, if Eliade claims that spatial non-homogeneity, right, is the hallmark of religious experience in the making of sacred space, then we might say that Western man, according to Winter's analysis, is a religious figure. Consequently, any criticism of man and the imperial agendas attached to this prevailing conception of the ideal human must include a critical engagement with religiosity, theology, political theology, and grammars of the sacred. Just real quick, I, I mean, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about um, in terms of Eliade's notion of what, what I'm reinterpreting as the world establishing sacred, the world making sacred. I've been thinking a lot about um, you know, contemporary black studies, including the work of Tyrone Palmer, right, who thinks a lot about, in a very important essay, in, other, uh, in Otherwise Than Blackness. Right? Uh, Palmer contends that affect theory um, works with some guiding assumptions, right? universal relationality, and a certain kind of universal right, access or openness to the world. As, Palm, as Palmer points out, the world, and here world, has many different right, connotations we can think about in terms of an ordered whole, um, a field and horizon of possibility, the paradigmatic operations by which uh, reality is structured, positioned, and rendered sensible, end quote, right? right? We can think about how, right, that, this, that these various notions of the world are defined or organized through a certain kind of abjection of blackness. Now, I, I will say this, it's not always clear to me what the relationship is between blackness and black people. <laughs> blackness, right, black people, blackness, um, uh, you know, uh, queer others, trans persons, right? Like, I, I want to think about the relationship between blackness and certain kind of racial, gender, sexualized others, right? That is, and not necessarily um, always a, a, a kind of, simpl uh, not simplistic, but a kind of one-to-one -one relationship between blackness and black people. But we could talk about that, but I need to think more about that. But 
the idea here is that, right, that there's this, the assumption that particularly Western philosophy, right, and, and kind of epistemes make about this universal access to the world, right, denies, right, the ways in which relationality is made possible by non-relationality, antagonism, and a certain abjection of blackness. And I think that a conversation with Eliade is helpful here, blackness being associated with, right, the opaque, uh, you know, that which is opaque, unformed, monstrous, and so forth, right? And I also just want to think, I'll end here with, I want to think also with um, somebody like Frank Wilderson, right, who in uh, the latest book, Afro-Pessimism, right, uh, has this line where he says, Afro-Pessimism offers a critique of the world, right, without redemption, right, except the end of the world, right? So for those of us, we should be thinking about the relationship between the apocalyptic and redemption, but as I take it here, right, um, you know, part of what he's suggesting here is that the renewal of the world is always predicated on, right, the perpetuation, right, of certain kinds of suffering, particularly, right, anti-black uh, anti violence and suffering. But I also take it here that he's, when he's talking about the end of the world, he might be also getting at, which I think Tyrone Palmer is taking from, from him, the end of our very commitment to something like world, right? And yet, I'm gonna end with attention because I don't really know. <laughs> I think with my political commitments, right, I think that, right, um, something like, uh, something like construction is, is necessary, right? What might it mean to think, uh, what might it think, I'll just leave it on this, what might it, think to, what might it mean to think world and relationality that is always cut Right, such that right, our, our very appeal to something like world of relationality is always um, traversed in some way by cuts and ruptures and wounds. I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thank you so much to our two presenters for these really uh, prolific opening uh, papers to get us started. Um, there's a lot on the table, I think, for consideration, and so my brain is kind of going in a number of directions, so bear with me as I try to formulate a coherent uh, set of questions. But while I'm doing that, uh, I want to remind folks that you can scan the QR code in the uh, program booklet to submit questions, or you can just raise your hand uh, to um, and there is a mic in the back in the hand of Sumin Kim, who's standing up right back there, who can bring the mic to you. Um, but as I reflect on the two papers, um, and uh, because I am a historian <laughs> by training, uh, but theoretically inclined in, in a number of important ways, um, I couldn't help but um, pay attention to uh, both of your attention to space and place. Um, and so just a, kind of a word cloud that we can kind of think aloud with, but um, the space of the abyss comes up for both of you. Um, the space of the demonological, demon, demon, excuse me, um, thinking about threshold as a, a term that actually appears in both papers. Uh, the cosmic, the cosmos, um, bordered world as another. Um, possession and the kind of multiplicity of meaning uh, imbued by possession one as a demonic possession but, or spirit possession as a kind of uh, term of um, possibility for African diasporic religions. Um, and also thinking about the monstrous, um, the monstrous as a kind of ontological um, sexed and gendered um, position. So I'm curious if we can kind of comment on what you're doing with space, um, 
world is also important. I'd also like us to think there um, in the import of in contemporary black studies of worlding as a kind of term that we hear in, in utility. What does it do for us? What are the limits of it? What is it obscure? Um, so I'll just stop there. Why don't we kind of tease out phrases here and, and think about space and place? For me, about the complexities of, of, of world and worlding, right? This is better. Okay. The, the complexities of world and worlding, right? So I think, I mean, on one hand, I think I've been, I think I've been very much influenced by certain kinds of, um, you know, um, I think radical political traditions that are invested in something like another world being possible, right? Um, you know, um, and yet there's something about, um, when I think with the Tyrone Palmer essay in conversation with um, Eliada, it's got me thinking about, well, is there some, is there some, I mean, we can imagine different types of worlds, right? We can even maybe imagine right, worlding differently in different, in qualitative different ways, but it seems to me that there might be something about that will always, uh, always some kind of trace, right? Um, of something like, right, uh, borders, limits, right? But also some kind of, that, that whatever, whatever is being described or inhabited as world, right, this, that has to be defined in some way over and against, right, either something that is, right, not coherent, right, or regions, peoples, populations that are seen as being world poor, and that's very Heideggerian language, right? So I'm, I'm, so I'm wrestling with that, right? I'm wrestling with, um, you know, I'm wrestling with, uh, on one hand, right, um, you know, space, place, how that's, how that's imagined, right? I'm, I'm wrestling with, um, you know, thinking about the, the, the politics of space around uh, coloniality, gentrification, and so forth, right? What's happening to every city across the United States and across the world, right? But also thinking about the ways in which for um, the traditions that I'm thinking about, you know, creating alternative worlds, right? Um, not worlds that connect the living and the dead, right? And that um, are not always, not always connected to property, right? And here I'm thinking with uh, my, my colleague and friend Tracy Hux and Diane Stewart's work, right? And when it's thinking about the ways in which uh, there are two volumes um, series, right? Thinking about the ways in which there might be kind of Afro-Atlantic traditions, right? Where a sense of home, right, and belonging is not always, right? Connection to the ancestors and the gods is, does not necessarily require us to think of the world as property, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all that, but that's not really an answer, but I'm just, I'm thinking about all that and I'm trying to think through those tensions if that, that makes sense. You want to respond? Yeah. All right. I, I, I'm curious to hear from you. Excellent. Is this microphone on? Mic check. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so, my I'm not um, originally wasn't trained as an early modernist by any means, but why I turned to um, early modern imagery, late medieval, is because I'm interested in multiple inflections of terms that circulated in the present. So, one, for example, is the kind of seemingly um, the disenchanted separation of magic from science. So when I'm thinking about worlding or even the cosmo prefix, the term cosmology shows up in religious studies, but also in physics. Um, and when you think about cosmogony, um, the origins of the world, um, cosmology, the way or cosmography, those ways that um, worlds have been mapped, the visual grammars of kind of early modern late medieval imagery are windows into how we how people have conceived of embodiment in seemingly non-racial terms. So one of the kind of driving forces of my interest, like 
what are the things that um, what are the things that seem non-racial about blackness? Um, what are the things that we take for granted as um, being indicative of blackness, and what do those things obscure? So I'm interested in um, how does blackness, before it gets uh, appended onto certain demographics of people, what is it doing in early modern cosmographies, competing cosmographies in the way the world is mapped, as a way to kind of defamiliarize, um, I think, the investment in visual culture and kind of cathecting onto um, anthropomorphic kind of recognizable images of black people. They like have two feet, two eyes, arms, there's an able-bodiedness of it. Um, they kind of get some kind of sociological um, archive to corroborate whatever kinds of contemporary appeals we might have about agency, even though they can find some enslavement. Um, so I'm always thinking about how does blackness show up in the shadow? And um, how does it show up in terms of line work? How does it signal chaos? Um, uh, Phil's talking very much about that. Um, so I'm interested in that. So cosmology, where does it show up in science and, and math and space? But also um, in terms of possession, one of the things I, I don't think it was successful in it, but it was a wonderful thought experiment, thinking about possession um, as the house inflected in terms of spirit possession, as you mentioned, but also in terms of property relations. Um, so thinking about what are ideas about possession, about the relationship between cosmology on a macro scale and cosmology on a micro scale, whereas man is kind of a small mirror of the sovereignty of a individual man, the king of his castle. How's that how does that like blossom out into man being able to owe the universe? And how does that shape how the ways that black people were thought rendered available to both to spirit possession in the positive and the negative, um, whether that's um, sacred possession, angelic possession, and also demonic possession, how does that um, open and vulnerability, um, how does that shape contemporary claims to um, sovereignty, to um, territory, to citizenship? So those are just some of the floating ideas about can you own property if you can also be invaded as property? Like what black people function as modal landmarks of territory wherever they roam. And so there's a kind of extraterritoriality about diaspora that so even when there's like one person in a, in a white country or 50 million, somehow black people signify debasement and slaveness in places where people have never met a black person or have only encountered one. And I'm fascinated by what um, that tells us about um, global politics. Um, I see that we have some hands up. Uh, Professor Rivera um, has her hand up, and then we'll hear from uh, Tom in the back. Thank you for two fascinating and I, I think very interconnected papers. I wanted to pick up on the question of territoriality and the presumed non-homogeneity of the world, perhaps to uh, complicate uh, Winter's account of it in ways that may, may connect the two of, of the papers. That it's, on the one hand, there, her, there is her argument about a division, a geographic imaginary that divides the world into inhabitable, uh, inhabitable and other zones as always in chaos, right? Um, but on the other hand, there is also the, in the, in the very process of conquest, coincides with the science of dividing the world that, that depends on also an imaginary of, 
of the homogeneity of the world such that you can mathematically divide it, right? And, and this is at the very um, moment of conquest, right? This, this um, science of geography uh, that, that depends on the mathematical grid over the world. Um, so I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about how the two things can coexist and actually help each other. Um, the, the accessibility, the imagine accessibility of some areas because they are outside of the realm of the sacred. And also then there, there's um, ac ac accessibility to mapping and, and those two property. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. It got me thinking about <clears throat> beginning of uh, Jay Z Smith's essay, "Religion, Religious, Right? Religions, Right?" But you know the famous quote of like, right? The the conquistador, right, coming to the Americas and saying, "These people have no religion, right? They have no clothes. They have no religion." Well, already it seems to me already in that moment is a kind of right. I think I'm trying to get it like already is a sense of right. You're marking some kind of like contrast and maybe ontological difference. But suggesting that this term religion is, assess is, is right is applicable right universally in a certain way, right? I think that's what I mean, it's not quite what it's, it's something like that to some extent, right? Um, you know, winter's, what winter winter is getting at is a certain imaginary of a certain non uh, imaginary of non homogeneity, right? That rearticulates itself and repeats itself between the, the theocentric and the biocentric, and yet at the same time, right? I wonder if maybe what you're getting at. I mean, on one hand. It, 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 it assumes something like a kind of universality, right, of man, right, and even a, a, a kind of fungibility of certain kinds of, of, of regions and bodies, right? And I don't, I, I mean, I wonder if then that means that we could, I don't know, I won't say, I won't say anything redemptive or anything, but I wonder if that, all, that means that, right, that even in moments, right, in which these kind of ontological divisions are being made, there's some understanding of contact there's some understanding of relation. Or on the flip side of that, if I read that more, it means that even the imagination of homogeneity or the imagination of relation can still be the occasion for all kinds of violence and brutality. I don't know if that's what, right? Because I, I take, I mean, she's, it seems to me she's always trying to think, at least I'm just recently read with my, my students, the 1492, um, A New World View. Like, even in these moments of brutality, she's always trying to suggest that, yeah, but there was, you know, even in this moment, like Columbus's imaginary had to change, right? His very notion of what's inhabitable had to, had to radically change, right? So. And it seems to me that she's also trying to always get us to think that, get to, to, to remind us that there are these moments, right? These moments where, right, um, these, these upheavals, right, where um, there's, I don't know, some kind of greater acknowledgement or awareness that human beings create their worlds, right, and then treat them, right? And so maybe, I don't know if it's getting to your question at all, but I'm wondering if there's something about this interplay between the homogeneous and heterogeneous that she would, we can maybe flip, or she would, might want us to flip in more, uh, more generative and less death-dealing ways, but I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. But. Um, something that just came to mind thinking about Winter's um, engagement with ideas around non-homogeneity is that I think what she's trying to do is tr trouble the seemingly in innocent distinctions that like someone like Aristotle would make in terms of differentiating different scales of the cosmos, of, of things in the firmament down things on 
on the planet's surface. So it's not just that things are distinguished from each other, it's that they're stratified. So things not being homogenous have to be ordered. And so the idea of ordering rocks from fish um, lends itself to the idea that um, humankind as a species is not internally homogenous, and so is therefore internally stratified. And we know what tends to be on the top and what tends to be on the bottom. So I think what she's trying to do is kind of comprehensively find resonances between um, um, the sciences um, and um, religion and how it impacts just kind of day-to-day -day, um, naturalizing of um, biocentric um, uh, theories of race. So I actually think Professor Rivera has in many ways uh, stolen the thunder on my, on my question, but I think I'll just, I'll reiterate it because these, in these wonderful papers, this seemed to me to be a really key theme, uh, imagination, uh, yes, in the scientific mapping of the world, but you know, also in the construction of a religious other place. I mean, you know, maybe you believe Dante went to hell, I don't know. Uh, but in some way, it's, it's, a, it's a creation of imagination. And then I guess my question for both of you with, with papers that really span this massive theoretical and chronological uh, area is, uh, okay, imagination works in the paradox of creation and obviously destructive force by that creation. And, you know, what is the way of... Uh, using that, you know, moving forward in these uh, animating questions that you have. Would you mind repeating the question one more time? Imagination, the paradox, creative and destructive. What is the way of using that maybe theme, which I, I think was present, you know, in, in both papers, as a way of, uh, you know, moving forward with the other questions that you have? That's a great question. I mean, I think if I think about, um, you know, you're getting at this kind of ambivalence of imagination, right? That, uh, or even, 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 or, or we, we, I mean, ambivalence in the sense of like the both and happening at the same time, right? She, I mean, I mean, she she uses the language in 1492, winter of, of in the Janus face view, right? Like there's so something does happen in 1492 for her that is actually really important, right? Regarding a certain upheaval, a certain episteme, episteme or planetary kind of imaginary, right? Uh, for, for winter, right? And that happens at the same time, right, that like, you know, Columbus wants to, right, you know, um, you know, um, yeah, re redeem peoples because the end of the world is coming or something like that, right? So I'm wondering, it's a couple things. One is like the ambivalence of imagination, but also that, right, a different imaginary, right, can also be rearticulating something, right? Particularly, I think, for winter, a certain kind of a set of divisions between symbolic life and symbolic death. I hope that's making sense, right? Such that, like, um, I, I think I'll stay there. But, but I will just say this, right? I think that often the language of imagination comes up as a way to, in, in, in often very auspicious and positive ways, right? Like th through imagination, it's, or just a reminder that the world is imagined and constructed and can be reimagined and reconstructed. But I take it that. Any of the authors that we're thinking with, are, I mean, I th maybe we have to take that ambivalence, right? Or, or maybe, I mean, that like even, uh, you know, um, I mean, if I just, again think with, with Wilderson's call, I mean, that, yeah, that, that, that another world, which we might not be able to describe, 
would involve some, is going to have to involve some kind of destruction, which also the destruction of our attachment to this world and all of its problems. Anyway, I hope I made, that made any kind of sense, but yeah. I'm a clarifying question. I'm wondering, uh, on, on the point about imagination, might imagination be a kind of antique category? And might the imagination actually be bereft of the kind of possibility we might think as possible? I don't know. Um, and maybe this is a pessimistic assertion, but Imagination seems to me to often be a stand-in for a larger set of practices without a kind of specificity around the ordering apparatus of the world as we know it. And so, especially in religious and theological contexts, the imaginative becomes a, you know, not to use ableist language, but a, a kind of crutch um, that doesn't allow for an interrogation of the thing that we don't want to say. Or the thing that cannot be said, I don't know. Um, yeah. So I'm curious about, you know, the imaginative as it relates to the de to demons. You know, I mean, even entering that terrain of inquiry, you know, in religious a religious studies context is like, whoa, <laughs> you know, yeah. and we know that the, the demonology is intri intricately interwoven the fabric of race making in the new world. Um, and so the African and the slave become the diabolical, right? Like that's fundamental to the racializing process. And so I'm, I'm just curious if we can kind of think about imagination here, the uses and perhaps the, the misuses of the imaginative. Because if you're offering that we might think about the end of the world, what then does it mean to follow with kind of imagination quickly, right? Rather than kind of tearing with the need for the end. Um, I'm kind of just rambling. No, no, I'm no. curious to kind of interrogate that a little further. Um, yeah. um, so thank you for um, re repeating the question. I think for me that it's less useful for me to think about imagination than more about desires and drives. Um, and if, on one hand, I, Dante's um, very fantastical, like, in, you know, inspiring um, set of cantos, you know, chronicling this, you know, the world of purgatory inferno, I don't think that's any less a work of imagination than the various versions of the Bible that we have. One. So that's just me as someone who just, they're in a medieval space when a very small um, portion of the population was actually literate. The idea that there would be complementary sets of imagery meant to illustrate, or vividly, vividly kind of communicate um, very complicated episodes or scenes in a very long, um, epic, um, convoluted set of stories is part of a visual grammar that requires, I saw a meme that said that, um, it was like a, some kind of tweet where it was like saying, when we read books, we're literally just hallucinating based upon ink um, typed on parchment. There's something that happens in the mind, and we're not all, what's fascinating is that we're, it was not, the fact that we're not exactly imagining the same things, but there's still a degree of resonance that everyone knows what you mean when you say a demon, what it looks like, what it sounds like, 
is a kind of a resource of tropes that people um, draw upon and that often typically uses blackness. So when we think about, to your point, Samad, about how possession um, comes up so often when there are accounts of possession in nunneries, I'm thinking about the, um, the nuns of Verdun, or, Verdun, or um, uh, they imagine black orbs just floating formlessly. Um, and we see these kind of tropes in contemporary horror movies, black ooze, when people think they're possessed, their fingers start blackening at the end. All these things that there's no set, there's no like, no one went to a meeting and say, these are all the things we're gonna narrate about what it means to be possessed, but somehow blackness and all these things um, as a sign of disorder are something that people readily have been drawing upon for centuries. So to your point, I think about 1492, this kind of linchpin point, but also, which also talks about 1441, you know, 50 years prior, about this disembarkation um, that, that precedes that. Um, but to the point of like, what's happening in 1492, at the same time, you all know the Vitruvian Man, the kind of um, iconic model of da Vinci, that comes out in 1490, 1491. So at the same time, there's kind of drive to go and launch this kind of transatlantic um, quest to start purchasing people and setting out a whole um, set of disasters. There's also this move to kind of um, set visual grammars about symmetry, about um, cosmography, about um, cis masculinity as being kind of the pinnacle of what it means to be human happening at the same time. So in terms of imagination, I'm interested in like, how, do, how are these imaginations expressed? And what are the things that we've inherited from those moments? And for me, it's like, I'm not really a religious scholar, so I approach things, I'm very neutral about it. I, I force myself to be neutral. So when I think about sacred possession, like in the possession of angels or demonic possession, to me, they're both territorial invasion. So when I think about works of imagination, I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but like, um, to your point, um, possession or the adversarial position is a constitutive part of Judeo-Christian um, logics. But for some reason, there's a taboo of thinking about it critically. I'm not as about, so studying that thing does not mean being invested in that same way. And I think some of the, com the confusion comes because in academia, people think I study revolutionary movements, I, so that means I'm therefore get some kind of uh, uh, street cred for being having those kind of politics. And sometimes those things line up and sometimes they don't. And so just the idea of there's a system, we should be very comprehensive and systematic at how we address um, systems of knowledge that would, should be inherited. So thinking about these things that you've offered, I, I, I think is important. Um, there's a question in the back, is that correct? Hello, uh, my name is Adrian. I have a question for both of you. It's thank you for your presentations. Um, I'll just start with Cecilio. Um, I was really um, curious by the different ways that the talk was kind of speaking into different conversations. And one of those that um, I would like to ask uh, you about is how your turn to kind of the early modern intervenes in the dominant whiteness of trans theorizing. And I'm thinking particularly of Susan Stryker's words to Victor Frankenstein, right, and the turn to the monsters there. If that's something that you're interested in intervening into, just kind of would like to hear more about um, how you see that kind of conversation expanding or turning differently with this, with your own turn to kind of the early modern and, and the demonic. Um, that kind of gets me in a weird way to Joseph's stuff because, of course, the Victor Frankenstein is a turn to the Gothic. And that makes me think about um, the way you grapple with uh, this apocalyptic kind of language, right? 
maybe not so much through the religious um, dimension of the apocalyptic, but something like the sublime. And, and is that a useful category for you? And there might not, you, we, there isn't an explicit line of like religious studies thinking in the question, but I think what's kind of shadowing the entire line of thought for me as I'm engaging with both of you is the way aesthetic categories, right? And literary categories actually become analogs for people to think about these religious questions. So yeah, thank you. So I'm thinking here about um, the you know, sublime through, as you pointed out, I mean, aesthetic category through people like Kant and Burke, right? Um, thinking about the way in which Zakia Jackson takes that on in her work, right? Where for both, for both of those authors, there's something about black women that become a certain kind of embodiment of the sublime in some way, right? But, but I think what's, what's interesting, I know these are not all the same, but something about the monstrous and the sublime, right? We're talking about, right? Something like attraction and repulsion, right? We're talking about some set of qualities, um, <clears throat> desires, beings that actually, right, uh, defy representation, even as they also, right, um, uh, in some ways, animate a certain desire to represent, right? Like there's this kind of back and forth I'm thinking about, right? So I think for me, when I, when I think about the monstrous, I think it, it's very much, it seems to me there's some kind of analogy here between the sublime, right? Regarding the attraction repulsion, but also, right, this kind of, you know, this tension-filled relationship between, right, that which can't be represented, right? And yet we spend a whole lot of time trying to like, at least talk about it, right? And maybe, or to tarry, to, 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 to tarry with, if that makes sense. But I'm also trying to take very seriously the ways in which, right, um, you know, Zakia Jackson, you know, argues and, and shows that for, the, you know, two key thinkers in this, in this tradition of the sublime, right, you know, black women or dark women become a kind of stand-in for that, right? That which can't be represented, right? Such that, right, that can be, it certainly is an occasion for all kinds of violence, right, but also might be, right, open up the possibility or impossibility, right, for other ways of being, knowing, desiring and becoming and so forth. I hope that makes sense, but yeah. Thank you for the, um, thank you for um, the um, assessment. Yes, many around uh, my kind of subterranean undergirding um, uh, concerns with um, trans studies, for example. Years ago, I was at a trans feminism conference um, presenting work, and I returned to Susan Stryker and the kind of tropes that are used in that, like very, again, I know it's an earlier work, but kind of canonical essay about um, the narration of white trans becoming through not just monstrosity, but specifically kind of dark chaos. Um, something that shows up and it's just taken for granted and not remarked upon as being anything particularly racial or in fact impacting the way that white transness or white trans studies has in fact regarded um, black transness and, and so that's in my mind so I'm one of, so that's on one hand um, I was like I need to very methodically trace how that comes to be um, but also my initial project when I was starting PhD study was like I was originally doing a, going to do a project on black trans people so I admitted in doing um, but I wanted to shift course because there's a way in which the kind of I, I would just say like a hegemonic, like it sucks the oxygen out of the room where there is a push towards um, instrumentalizing people's biographies in order to make kind of these political, um, prescriptive political stances about um, futurity and generativity. And there's a way in which 
I, one hand is like, you don't need to know everything that we're up to to survive. And, I, and what I predicted actually happened. The things that have been, in some cases, cartoonishly um, lampooned into being very feel-good kind of sound bites about what black trans people are doing to navigate systems of structure. And I think, on one hand, we have to tell stories and be rigorous about um, illuminating hidden kind of um, cultures, but we also should be mindful of some things don't need to be in the academy, and there's just not a lot of sense around it. And I think so, just literally just like straight sense of like, why are you giving all the recipes? Now people can't, um, how are people supposed to finesse when everyone's just like doing a sociological ethnography? So there's a level of like, I, I wish people were mindful of that, but also too, to demystify some of the things that we think we mean. That means that, honestly, I was, I'm very grateful, Mamad and, and Joseph, for you all engaging my work. I feel very marginal to both those fields. You know, one aside to that is that I um, recently presented at, there was a conference on early modern trans studies um, at the Folger, where I'm a fellow this year. And in early, even in early modern trans studies, as it means to be corrected to kind of very, quote unquote, presentist. Um, and I say that with scare quotes, because I'm trained as a presentist performance studies person. Um, there's a way in which there's a, a show of archives, um, and also that, to the point about imagination, the speculative ways in which transness um, is in the record. And so, even as that is doing particular kind of work, you know, thinking about your work, um, um, being a historian of mine, um, there's a way in which there's still kind of key tropes. They're looking for a white Joan of Arc. We need a, a, a distinguished or recognizable white trans figure that people can like latch onto to say these stories. There is no record of, you're not gonna find a record of any black trans person in the medieval archive other than like unnamed eunuchs for the same reason why you, you're not gonna find portraits or there's just kind of a lack of sense around method mm. um, that I think needs to be attended to. So that's why I turn to alchemy. Mm. There, are, there are portrayals of seemingly black figures. That's why I turn to demons that have been courting out from even from black visual culture as not being respectable enough images of early modern imagery in order to kind of defamiliarize, to your point, Joseph, what's the difference between blackness and black people? We have one question from the uh, live stream I do want to make sure we get to. It's for both uh, doctors here. What I loved about your sermonic presentation is the deep attention to how religion behaves, particularly how theological language and Christian imaginaries enact violence and erasure throughout history. What I also loved was how these sermonic moments felt rooted in a person, a people, giving substance to ideation or flesh to dry bones. What does religious studies, maybe more particularly uh, the intersections of black studies and religious studies, offer to hurting people? What modalities of care and tenderness and or resistance and abolition does religious studies offer to those that desperately need new modalities of school so I've been like that's all you as a religious study aficionado I mean I think I mean, one one thing I think that this conjunction of oh, sorry this conjunction of black studies religious studies um, might might offer right if we're thinking about the importance of care um, the importance of a certain kind of, you know, 
relation or non-relation to the other um, is perhaps, um, and here I'm thinking with certain authors, right, from you know, uh, Sadia Hartman, Christina Sharp, George Bataille, I don't know how they, just some constellation in my mind. But it could be that partly what's helpful is to actually, right, critique and refuse, right, certain well-intentioned, well right, forms of care, right? And I mean by that, like, I'm thinking about the kinds of, the, the, the ways in which, um, you know, compassion or sympathy, right, can often be uh, a, very much a replication of violence, right? Or it could be that actually care, is, care and intimacy are never, right, easily divorceable, right, from anguish and violence. I know that's difficult to hear and say, but it could be that, right, that, that, that what some of these uh, authors that they were thinking about, right, throughout different time periods are, are get, maybe getting us to see is, right, is that, right, you know, um, care and relationality, I don't know if relation, <laughs> care and relationality is always wounded, right? Which means that there's no way to make any kind of simple, uh, simple distinction between, right, the kinds of care that, would, that we want to, right, resist and refuse various forms of violence and brutality, right? Um, I hope that makes sense. I know it's a kind of negative way to get at it, right? I'm, I'm certainly interested in, in certain kinds, I'm thinking about certain kinds of practices and strategies, but I'm always thinking about those practices and strategies and, and as, as being certain kinds of ruptures and cuts to certain ways of thinking about, right? Um, certain kinds of ruptures and cuts into, um, you know, um, I don't know, the desire to overcome and get over, right? The, what I call the constitutive wound. Um, Cecilio, thank you for your paper, um, as well as you, Joseph. I have a question about uh, if any distinction, if there's any distinction for you between how the black maternal has been thought as also this kind of non-representable reproductive zone in black studies and how you're thinking about the chthonic um, and the abyssal. Um, particularly as it has stakes for conceptions around the black female body um, and sexual dimorphism in black studies currently. Thank you. I, so I really appreciate the question. So in some ways I'm gonna leave you in suspense about what my, what my conclusions about that are, but I am thinking deeply about the relationships between um, sex, sexual dimorphism, um, um, exegesis, um, and then that's why I turned to alchemy to kind of trouble some of those distinctions, but um, stay tuned. Really quickly, I'm, I'm actually interested in how the black maternal shows up in hip hop, right? Um, particularly certain moments where the, art, art, the artists like Biggie Smalls or Nas is actually imagining themselves in the womb, right? It becomes, a, so anyway, yeah. Mm. Hello, oh, this is very loud. I'm George Mwath, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies. I'm very happy to um, have heard these papers from you, Dr. Cooper and Dr. Winters, uh, mainly because um, if you listen close enough, life rhymes. And uh, yesterday in our class uh, on uh, the history, a black history of electronic dance music, we started reading Marlon Bailey's Butch Queens Up in Pumps. And in the introduction to that book, um, Bailey cites Munoz's use of world making um, in the book of essays, Disidentifications. And in the classroom, we began to think about underground spaces and counter public spaces. Think about, you know, someone like Michael Warner, big kind of communications idea. But the idea that the underground is not just a space 
that is to be obscured or a space that is necessarily in contrast with the public, but is purposefully, uh, in, a man, in many ways, a sacred space. And uh, what we were exploring in the class was the ways in which that sacrality is illegible ineleg in, uh, to those who, are, who, who don't know, so the kind of colloquial, if you know, you know. Um, and so my question is, across your two papers, thinking methodologically, and so often this question is addressed methodologically um, in an ethnographic sense, right? I, I'm a long-term participant observer of this group that you don't know, there's obscure to you, and in my being in this space, I, I, I can convey to you what this group is about. But Dr. Winters, um, the use of history is also another method, right? And that's fascinating to me, and I'm wondering with this problematic of world making and kind of the sacrality inherent in it and the words and the sort of the, the, the threshold that you're talking about, that moment where you recognize or you don't recognize, that moment where it is or it's not. What do you think is the use of either register? You know, we need ethnography in the moment to kind of break this theoretical um, notion knowable and feelable, right, in, the, in our lives now. But there's also the historical register. Um, you know, I'm thinking about a figure um, like William Dorsey Swan, you know, um, Afro-American born into slavery in 1860, who becomes free and is widely known as the first drag queen in America. And why it is figures like that are so obscured and still surprising to us when they're mentioned. So even, in, even as we have a crisis of needing to know and be in the moment, we still have a crisis of history too, where figures in the past, whether they're the nameless eunuch or someone like William Dorsey Swan, still surprise us and still are figures we reach into the abyss to, to know. And I think what's so powerful about your two papers is that they offer a route for us. So I'd wonder if you can both explore the method here. Thank you so much. I'll say I think I'll just to um, I'll answer your question sideways and that I, I think I heard you say that um, these underground spaces are sacred. Um, I think methodologically or I, I'm not, I'll just say my general orientation is that I, for one of the things that black people do to manage an anti-black world that says, for example, black people are lazy and shiftless is to show how hardworking and industrious black people are. Another half of saying like, the relegation of black people to being profane and debased is to make the claim that black people are sacred. I am not interested in um, recuperating things that have been previously said as being profane and turning them sacred in order to um, perform an alignment with them or resonance with them. Um, and again, there's things I do at an intellectual level and then the things, you know, I'm beginning the things I do in my day to day. But just on the, in terms of phonic space, I'm thinking about the Underground Railroad or even underground subcultures, and it's one of the reasons why I go a bit earlier than these 19th century, 18th century um, uh, moments, um, to think about do we need, a, do we need to re re repair or reimagine darkness of subsurface spaces, whether the neutral underworlds of Hades or whether they're like the carceral spaces of hell, do we need to make them light and good and holy in order to show that black people 
can interface with them. And I'm, I'm just saying, like, let things be profane because one person's prayer is another person's curse. And so when I think about, why don't I turn to the thonic is that if we think about autochthoning as a synonym for indigeneity, black people may not be able to claim citizenship or sovereignty over a space that we're born to um, because they're indigenous or autochthonous to a specific landmark within a geographic set of geographic borders. Think about you're already about thresholds and borders. But if the thonic subtends the entire world, that says something different about where black people belong and what they can claim, right? Blackness is underneath everything. And so when we take that as a foundation, we can maybe have a different kind of orientation to how we manage the valorization of light as being an exposure, um, because I don't, yeah, so I'll just stop there, but those are some things I'm thinking about. In my day-to-day, -day, I love, I was a drag performer and burlesque performer, the science of performance studies. It was just all underground, not respectable, gay bars. Um, but also when I'm thinking um, on a paradigmatic level, what is it about romanticizing the hidden in the underground? Well, that's how we got RuPaul's Drag Race, so. Just sitting with that. <laughs> okay. Um, are there any questions? I think there was another question over here, or did I make that up? Okay. Um, thank you both for your presentations. I, I have a question about, uh, as we're thinking about space, as, um, uh, well, I, I, I have a question about utopia and the contested kind of space of utopia. Um, and how that might play into both your your thoughts, especially thinking about it from obviously a religious lens. It's like an easy way to to to, to go uh, to go there, but then also through like something like black anarchism, um, uh, and so the sort of not just the um, current contested space, but the also aspirational contested space. The etymology of utopia, but I know, right, you know, this idea of no place, right, or nowhere, which then gets flipped now here or something like that, right? But I'm wondering, I mean, so I've been thinking a lot with, um, you know, I don't know try, trying to understand the work of like people like Fred Moten, right, and the kind of the relationship between something like the fugitive, right, um, and the, the refusal of property, settlement, and so forth, right? And I'm, I'm trying to. <laughs> Ultimately, I'm trying to think about, in, in, a, in a future projects, something like the possibility of ethics of the, of, of the ethics of the unsettled, right? Right? Because I mean, when I, when, I think of, when I think of utopia, right, I think of a combination of things that both like a kind of longing, right? A longing for something like home, <laughs> but also the impossibility of home, right? Precisely if home means, right, is connected to property, right? I hope that makes sense, because that would always, that would mean a reproduction of certain kind of settler colonial, colonial kind of, right? So I'm trying to think, and this goes to, I mean, the anarchy, which um, Professor, Professor Carter, if he was here, was thinking a lot about religion of anarchy. I'm trying to think about what an ethics of the unsettled and what an ethics of, I guess, right, deformation, right, or what comes before the law, right, might look like, right? I, and I often go to the aesthetic, right? I often go to, like, music, poetry, literature, film, what that might look politically, right? 
Um, I'm still trying to work out, or maybe I should keep silent about that in these spaces. With that, no, I'm just joking. But um, no, seriously, I'm trying to think about what that might look like beyond the aesthetic. Uh, I hope that makes any sense. But it's something about utopia, right? There's a, often it's, it's often seen as a, as, as a kind of longing for something, right? A future, but it's also, I think, the way someone like Deleuze looks at it, or Adorno, is that there's also a sense of utopia in the in the present, right? But it's something that's also fleeting at the same time. That makes. Sense. I'm gonna keep thinking about it, but thank you um, for the question. Hi, um, I'm Anthony Trujillo, um, and I guess I center myself in Native American Indigenous Studies. Um, and interesting, I'm like, oh man, I guess I'm doing freaking Eliada. I didn't know that. That's kind of like the, like the, the um, uh, analysis or the critique I'm kind of building out. So thank you so much for uh, drawing that out. I'm really taken uh, with the idea of, or just the pressure on the idea of the threshold. Um, and both as a problem, a space of problem, a space of, you know, in your language of a cut, uh, Professor Winter, um, as another kind of uh, perhaps riff on that idea. So the threshold is space of encounter, space of cut. Um, and thinking about that as a site of like world-making practice in some way, uh, at least in kind of Eliada's form, uh, formation. And, um, you know, the, like what gets set up as binaries is already you know, racialized, gendered, all these types of things. Um, so if we kind of think about a threshold between some of, uh, within those formation, are we just real, you know, re-perpetuating that binary as kind of a, a side of threshold between? But I'm also thinking about how is this actually connected to, um, you know, bodies, uh, sexed bodies uh, or just physical bodies and land spaces. I've thought of like trying to think a lot about like amphibiousness as kind of a space from which to think about different possibilities of being. So what are sites from which to think about the possibility and also the problem of the threshold as a world-making place? I guess that's my question. As you were speaking, when I was thinking about the um, um, the threshold, um, there uh, Hortense Spiller's concept of vestibular vestibularity comes to mind. Is the vestibular vestibularity um, marks one of several theorizations of these, as you pointed, space of encounter, um, portals. Um, this why also thinking about hell, hell mouths. The hell mouth is the gateway between um, realms surface and subsurface space. Um, but also, uh, there are other ways of, I, 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 I'm still, I'm gonna, th I'm still thinking about like what it does to um, observe or mark the different ways that boundary points are where different spheres meet and, and at what point are we reifying them by acknowledging them and I'm, and so, Something I'm thinking about, but I know there's a vestibular, but also um, Sylvia Winter talks about the Pillars of Hercules as another kind of threshold space that doesn't have the same kind of um, bodily kind of resonance, like the vestibule is like in your ear, the vestibule is where it's outside the room. But the Pillars of Hercules, these two um, columns between um, the known and quote unknown world, and you see that on um, 
so there's different ways of thinking about that, um, and they do different kinds of work. So one is like the difference between monstrosity and human beings, but also um, the inside and outside of the vestibule, like a home, the home space. So I just think there, it's just a, it's a, um, it marks an opportunity for violence. Just real uh, quickly, I mean, I think for, as you're pointing out, thank you for your, for, for your questions. I think, as you pointed out, for Eliada, uh, it's, I mean, it's precisely that moment where the contrast is most, <laughs> most heightened, right, most salient, and where it seems to kind of, I mean, something like seems to kind of break down, right, between, right, it's a, it, it is a kind of passage or, or an entrance or something, right? So, but I've also been thinking a lot about, I've been, I mean, I've also just been thinking a lot about, like, the term threshold, like, I actually had to go back and look it up, right, and think about like, I mean, there's a there's a there's a way in which, and of course, it's you know it's a, it's a limit, it's a kind of in between space, but it's also like it's it's a space like if you go beyond it, right, something gets activated, right, or if you go below it, right, any kind of stimulus will not cause any action, right. I don't know what that means, right. I mean, what that means for this conversation, but I think that's something I have to think more about, right, because if the threshold, right. Is the, is the occasion for some kind of, you know, production, right? Or some kind of, I mean, in, the, in the, the context we're thinking about, we can think about what that, what that action is, right? What, the, what, the, what, what that moment of action is, it can be a, like, you know, it'd be a monstrous intimacy, right? It could be, right, be a, a very violent kind of action, right? But if we're talking about a threshold as a moment where, that leads to something like inactivity, right? Or maybe a kind of falling or a kind of silence, right? I'm kind of interested in maybe what that kind of, so this is me saying that like, I've got to do more in thinking about, I mean, Eliotta kind of, he introduces it, doesn't necessarily go back to it, but I'm kind of interested in to think about like maybe the different ways in which, right, the, ter the term threshold might signify, right, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. We have time for one final question. Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.